This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Thank you very much, and uh, thank you for inviting me to be here for my first Carter meeting. So these were the sorts of models that were around for the origins of modern humans in the 1990s. So we have the extremes of multi-regional evolution, a global evolution essentially of modern humans everywhere ancient humans lived. They evolved through to modern humans with gene flow between the different regions. At the other extreme, the recent African origin model out of Africa, the replacement model, arguing there's only one place where modern humans evolved and then modern humans spread out to replace these more archaic lineages outside of Africa. I'm sorry about this diagram, but this was prepared back in 1974, me trying to summarize the results of my PhD thesis on skull variation in Pleistocene humans. Um, So I was using very primitive multivariate techniques and computing power to look at differences in skull shape. And at this time, the Neanderthals were regarded probably by most workers as being direct ancestors of modern humans. So I had the advantage of 400 modern human skulls from Bill Howes' database and their skull measurements. And I used that to show that a number of fossil skulls were within the modern human range. This included uh, the Upper Paleolithic people of Europe, Shkul 5 from the Middle East, uh, Omo 1 from Africa. And down here we had ancient skulls, Homo erectus skulls from Java and China, very different from modern humans in skull shape, and two specimens, one from Broken Hill in Africa and Petralina in Greece, that seemed also very archaic. And you can see the position of the Neanderthals. So rather than the Neanderthals forming an intermediate between archaic humans and modern humans, as you'd expect if they were the ancestors of at least some modern humans, in my data they seem to be going off in their own direction in terms of their cranial shape away from modern humans. So this is the sort of view I've been putting forward recently for the last, let's say, 500,000 years of the story, and I made the awful error here of combining a genetic tree with, a fossil, with fossil specimens. Um, so the background here is, is uh, one version of a tree for mitochondrial DNA divergences based on complete mitochondrial sequences of recent humans and of Neanderthals. And there's a coalescence estimated date around 400,000 years for the mitochondrial lineages from this data of modern humans and Neanderthals. So if we map fossils onto these time periods, we have of course modern humans and Neanderthals here, and beyond 400,000 years in my view, there was a common ancestral species for modern humans and Neanderthals, which I call Homo heidelbergensis. So in my interpretation, heidelbergensis was a widespread species in Europe, in Asia, and in Africa. It went in at least two evolutionary directions. In Africa, it gave rise to modern humans. In Western Eurasia, it gave rise to Neanderthals. Anatomically, modern humans are at the end of uh, this part of the evolutionary sequence in Africa. Neanderthals are at the end of this sequence in Eurasia. But also, there will be members of the lineage early on in Africa that are not anatomically modern human, but are on the sapiens lineage, and there will be equally archaic Neanderthals that are on the Neanderthal lineage 
but are not yet showing all the features of the late Neanderthals. So when we look at Africa itself, we've got a Heidelbergensis specimen here. This is Broken Hill, a CT scan of it. And here's a modern human. We've got a range of fossils from the Middle Pleistocene of Africa. Some of them we can date quite well. Some of them are not so well dated. But we have to bear in mind that our sample of African fossils is actually quite limited geographically. We know from the Middle Stone Age record that humans occupied pretty well at times the whole of the African continent. But our fossil record is dominated by specimens from Morocco, from the Rift Valley sites of East Africa, and from Southern African sites. So there are whole areas of Africa, particularly Central and West Africa, where we have no fossil human record at all for this period, even though we know people were there from the stone tool record. And I think this is an important consideration. But certainly for my interpretation, and a number of, not just my interpretation, Africa is the only continent that shows transitional fossils between Heidelbergensis and modern humans. And here we've got a specimen from Ethiopia, the Hurtos number one skull, and a specimen from Morocco, uh, the Jebelichud number one specimen. And these specimens do show mosaics of characteristics between modern humans and, and Heidelbergensis. So in terms of looking at the pattern of evolution of modern humans in Africa, I've certainly been changing my views through, through the years. One view, of course, is that there's really just a gradual change. If we have a complete fossil record in Africa, we will see a gradual transformation of Heidelbergensis into modern humans, as shown in this is the, uh, the paper led by Tim White on the Herto specimen, where Herto is interpreted as a, as a straightforward transitional specimen uh, in this sequence of Heidelbergensis to modern humans. But when we look at a single site, such as Omo Kibish in Ethiopia, these two skulls are dated within the limits of our methods to both about 195,000 years ago. They're found a few kilometers apart, but even in my PhD work in, in 1974, these skulls had really quite different affinities. Omo one, to me, seemed to be a modern human, and we have parts of the skeleton that's indeed suggested it is in, in its main features, but Omo two is a very distinct looking specimen which I can't call a modern human, and yet there it is apparently alongside Omo one in Ethiopia 195,000 years ago. So Phil Reitmeyer has tended to say, well, this is variation perhaps within a single population, I and some others have argued maybe the variation is too great and it might instead indicate that we actually have separate lineages coexisting even in Africa of modern humans. So in my original PhD analyses I really just had these, Afri these ancient African specimens were in there, Jebelichud 1, Omo 1 and Omo 2. Um, and we can take Omo 1 out as a modern human but let's look at the rest of the Middle Stone Age sample in terms of skulls that's built up since I did my PhD. So we have uh, the Singer skull which was known before but not well studied. We've got the Ungaloba specimen, likely hominid 18. We've got Elia Springs, the Ehud material, Ehud 2 there to go with Ehud 1, Herto and, and the Guamde specimen. And the point is that for a while I continue to lump all these specimens together in a single Middle Stone Age human sample from Africa. But as time's gone on increasingly, I've realized that was a major mistake because it obscured the variation that this material shows. Uh, this really is showing a lot of variation in skull form, um, which makes me think about the pattern of evolution here. And it's even more complicated than that because on my original Heidelbergensis model, Heidelbergensis gives rise 
to Neanderthals in Eurasia and to modern humans in, in Africa. Um, but what if it doesn't just disappear when it evolves into these succeeding uh, descendant species? What if it actually stays around alongside them? Um, that will complicate things too. And, and I've been working for a number of years on trying to date the Broken Hill fossil and the other associated bits and pieces of skeletons of several individuals from this site in what's now Zambia. And using electron spin resonance and uranium series uh, methods, we're still working on this, and also sediments associated with the skull. The surprising results so far uh, are that the material all seems to range from about 175,000 to 300,000 years old. So whereas in the literature you'll see that Broken Hill is dated often at 500,000 years, the present evidence suggests that it's, it's much younger than that. Um, so this might suggest that Heidelbergensis is hanging on, potentially alongside that evolving Sapiens lineage in Africa. Worse than that, it may have been hanging on in Eurasia as well, but I haven't got time to talk about that. And in North Africa, uh, Jean-Jacques Kublin's here, and, and there it can be demonstrated that there is a lineage of humans there, potentially uh, with some regional continuity. Uh, here we've got Jebeli Hood number one specimen, maybe 160,000 years old, maybe even a bit older. And here we've got an Atirian skull from Dar es Sultan, maybe 100,000 years old. And it looks like there is perhaps morphological continuity between these two suggesting that there are regional trends going on uh, in particular parts of Africa in terms of morphology. And um, recently I've worked with a number of other people on, a, on a, an intriguing specimen from Nigeria that's only 13,000 years old from a site called Iwo Eleru. This is the oldest fossil human in the whole of West Africa. It's only 13,000 years old. And in my PhD, it came out as a rather strange mixture of archaic and modern human features, and I thought that was maybe just uh, the way I'd studied it or measured it or analysed it at that time in 1974. So I revisited the specimen with new dating work and in collaboration with people like Katerina Havati, geometric morphometrics. And uh, in the session at the AAPA meetings, um, we presented the idea that this specimen actually was very distinct from, uh, from recent populations in West Africa, and indeed showed some rather archaic features. Here it is compared with the Jungaloba specimen from Lightly, which is uh, dated usually around 150,000 years old. In Katerina's geometric morphometric analyses, this was the nearest neighbour in terms of cranial shape to Iwo Eleru. And in the same session in which we presented our results at the Fizanth meetings, is Isabel Krevka presented uh, with co-authors, including Alison Brooks, the view that Adeshango in the Congo, similarly in a late Stone Age context, there were specimens from Ishango that showed archaic characteristics less than 20,000 years ago. So a more complex picture here uh, for Africa than we normally think of. But I've been developing over the last 10 years a, a view that uh, there isn't like a single centre of evolution for modern humans in Africa, a view I used to have. There isn't like a Garden of Eden in South Africa or East Africa. Different parts of Africa contributed to what we call modern humans um, through movements of populations, gene flow, and, and exchanges of ideas. So this is entirely a hypothetical model, and we need to fit it in with the sort of detailed data that, that Alison and, and Rick have been putting together for the African climates. But possibly, with much of Africa very arid 150,000 years ago, we would have small populations quite separate from each other, isolated from each other. Then, when North Africa certainly becomes more humid, 
we perhaps have gene flow and maybe this is the time when the use of red ochre and the use of shell jewelry from Nasaria shells spread over much of the range of modern humans at that time. Then when we come on to the last 60,000 years, we see again changes in aridity, uh, North Africa uh, cut off and perhaps these populations arguably even, who knows, going extinct uh, in some of these places. And we have East Africa perhaps becoming a center for the eventual dispersal of modern humans out of Africa. So this is a, up here is a diagram that Roger Lewin put together for multi-regional evolution globally as it was in the 1990s and I'm suggesting now that this might represent the kind of pattern we've got for modern human evolution in Africa. So um, the view I had 15, 20 years ago was very much a punctuational view of modern human origins that there would be one place in Africa where maybe an isolated population of modern humans really became modern physically and behaviorally, genetically, um, in quite a short period of time and then spread out from there. Um, I then moved away from that to the view that it was a much more gradual process in line with what I perceive to be the pattern for Neanderthal evolution in Europe. Now, um, I think it's more like what I can call here a coalescent African origin that different bits of the African populations are contributing to the behavior, to the morphology, to the genes of what we're going to call modern humans uh, through time. So a quick word on the spread out of Africa, and here we've got uh, just a representative map from uh, uh, a genetics paper published in PNS in 2012. So we can say that there are modern humans anatomically in China uh, 40,000 years ago, uh, down in Southeast Asia 45,000 years ago, reaching Australia at least 42,000 years ago. And at the same time, they're over in Europe. We can now place the arrival of modern humans even in Western Europe from fossil data and new dating work on those specimens to more than 40,000 years ago for Italy and for uh, Great Britain. So there's this quite early dispersal. This brings modern humans potentially into the territory of these archaic humans that are living outside of Africa. The implication that there was interbreeding when those populations were in some level of contact. First of all, a phase of interbreeding with Neanderthals, maybe one phase, maybe more, we'll hear about that later. And then over in, maybe even over the Wallace line in uh, Australasia, there was interbreeding with these other populations known as the Denisovans, and signs of that gene flow showing up only in Australasia today. So, simple attempt to try to represent this and uh, we'll have to leave out all these other species that are, we haven't been able to talk about, but the suggestion now is that Heidelbergensis didn't just go two ways to give rise to modern humans in Africa and to Neanderthals in Western Eurasia. It also gave rise to a third branch, the Denisovans in Eastern Eurasia. And then when modern humans came out of Africa, they pick up some Neanderthal DNA, perhaps in the Middle East or Asia, a smaller group of them heading to Australasia pick up some Denisovan DNA on the way to Australia. And even within Africa, the possibility that an archaic lineage in Africa, perhaps surviving members of Heidelbergensis, put in more archaic DNA back into the modern human gene pool in sub-Saharan Africa. So quite a complicated story. And just to finish off with these different models of human evolution that I started with, so in 1970, nobody thought there was a recent African origin. People thought it was either a global pattern, as in multi-regional evolution for modern human origins, or that maybe Europe or the Middle East or Southeast Asia were centers for the evolution of modern humans. But the pendulum then started swinging strongly towards a recent African origin, 
and I and many other people by about the year 2000 were confident enough to say that we can more or less talk about 100% recent African origin for modern humans, genetically, uh, behaviourally, physically. But now the pendulum has uh, swung back a bit, potentially, and now we have to say mostly out of Africa, probably. <laughs> so on that note, I will stop. Thank you. I'm going to talk a little bit about genetics and um, particularly I'm going to have to touch on some of the highlights over the last couple of decades just very briefly, but it's well accepted that modern humans originated in Africa and spread out from there, but what's really not well understood is the extent to which the ancestral population that gave rise to our species was isolated and to what extent uh, different archaic forms may have contributed to modern diversity. And I think answering these questions is going to be very important for understanding the origin of innovation, how these innovations may have been shared, or how they were uniquely uh, um, adapted to one small area of Africa. So I was thinking a lot like Ajit when I was wanted to take one step back and show how humans fit into the larger picture of primate phylogeny. This is a tree, a phylogenetic tree, based on the latest whole genome sequence data. And um, what you can see is that humans form this one branch most closely related to chimpanzees. And um, certainly we are great apes, but what I also wanted to point out, there's something a little bit unusual about humans, and that is if you notice the other great apes uh, have uh, subspecies or closely related forms that they, they coexist with. For example, orangutans, there's the Sumatran and Bornean orangutan. Gorillas, there's three or four different subspecies of gorillas, lowland, eastern and western lowland gorillas, uh, mountain gorillas, which aren't shown, and then, and of course, in chimpanzees, we have bonobos, and then four different subspecies of chimpanzees, and we stand alone here. And so the question is, um, wh where, how did we become the last standing representative of the genus Homo? And one possible answer is that, or why are we alone? One possible answer is that our success resulted in the demise of what might be considered subspecies, or I know Chris stays away from that word, just closely related uh, groups, genetically, genetically differentiated but related morphologically groups. And uh, these could have been, as we know very well from the fossil record, uh, sharing, coexisting with us for a long time, but uh, have since disappeared. So let's, let's take a little bit closer look at the tip of that human or that a hominid branch, and as has already been pointed out, the fossil record is reconstructed, and we can see the time at which presumably these different uh, forms existed. I've color-coded them to show that yellow is Eurasian forms, specifically, and dark blue is African forms, and uh, the ones that are found in both places are, are mixed colors. And you can notice, again, the couple of major points that Homo sapiens is a very young species appearing only in the last couple hundred thousand years, or and that the fact that there's overlappingness in these bars suggests that they were coexisting for quite some time. So what happened to these other forms, and how did we become the last standing representative of, of the genus? Well, that brings us to the models, also covered by Chris nicely, and I do have Chris's picture up here, and uh, Milford Wolpoff, who's known very well known for his putting forward the multi-regional evolution model, which I find to be a very interesting model from a population genetics point of view, where you have the gradual transition uh, from archaic to modern form over the full range of all these different uh, groups in Eurasia and Africa. 
And this uh, is seen to occur because they're connected. They're all connected through this sort of trellis-like pattern with these little blue arrows representing gene flow, which is the steady process of migration of individuals from one group to the other, interbreeding. And then a very critical component to this is that there's natural selection. So the traits that are favored are going to spread from one place to the next. And the other traits that are locally adapted will stay local. And so you'll have local differentiation as well as this idea that the, um, the beneficial traits that make us anatomically modern are eventually assembled in one morphological package through this process. And so it's seen as, uh, you wouldn't even call these different species, we'd call them just different forms of, the gene, of one species under that view. Now, of course, the extreme alternative view um, is this recent out-of-Africa model or the complete replacement model, which suggests quite differently that all of the traits uh, that make us modern trace to one place, a single population in Africa. And whereas this model would predict that some of our genes would trace back to many of these different ancestors in the past, all of our genes would trace back to one local group in Africa. So those are predictions of the two models. Um, what kinds of genetic evidence has been produced in the past that made us so strongly go with the recent replacement model and kind of move away from the, uh, the multi-regional model? Well, going back to, uh, I would call it a landmark paper in 1987, led by um, Alan Wilson and Rebecca Kahn and Mark Stoneking. This is, what I w this is what is known as the indirect approach, and that is where you survey variation in natural populations and then you make inferences about the past by looking at the, the shape of the gene tree that you construct from the genetic variation. And in this particular case, the, in the 80s, they were looking at restriction fragment length polymorphism. They reconstructed a tree. I'm actually showing a tree from a paper in 2000 by Ulf Ullenston where they used whole mitochondrial genomes. But the, the result was the same. The, the reason that they, they came down on the side of a recent African origin was that you can see three different reasons. One is that the African lineages, which I've shown in red, are longer and they're more mutationally diverse, which suggests there's been more evolutionary time in Africa for these lineages to evolve. Also, the root of the tree is found among Africans, suggesting that the mitochondrial DNA traces back to a single point in Africa, a single woman at one point in the past that lived in a population in Africa. And the final point that's just as important is that the time for all of this evolutionary change leading back to the root of this tree was very recent, within the last 200,000 years, which is very much within the time frame of the period in which Homo sapiens originated. So I've shown the mitochondrial tree now against the reconstructed fossil record, and you can see that the, all the lineages of contemporary humans where you have Africans and on one side of the, the root and Asian Africans and others on the other side, all tracing back to a common ancestor within the last 200,000 years. There's no other lineages present in the modern pool that would represent perhaps what might be variation found in these other forms, these archaic forms. So this was a strong signal to coming, com coming from the genetic side that made such an impact in the way we think. It's quite interesting to think what if we had found a different tree or looked at a different region of the genome first? But this was the first. It made a large impact. Some of you are old enough to remember 1988 when it made the cover of Newsweek. Now, another nail in the coffin of multi-regional evolution came in, uh, 10 years later. Svante Pabo had also been working in uh, Alan Wilson's lab trying to figure out ways to recover ancient DNA from fossil material. And in 1997, Svante and his, his group were successful in isolating DNA from three Neanderthal bones. 
Um, they sequenced a small portion of the mitochondria, this is called the D-loop, and they reconstructed a gene tree, and they found that the, the Neanderthals formed a clade or a group that was quite distinct from everything we knew that was segregating in modern humans, suggesting there was no mixing, no interbreeding. Again, supporting the idea of this complete replacement, at least with respect to Neanderthals. Now, move forward another 10 years, and certainly the technology had improved, and Svante's group um, continued to work on uh, this ancient DNA, in particular shown here, mitochondrial sequencing of the entire 6,500 nucleotides of the mitochondrial genome in five different Neanderthals, a more resolved uh, tree for modern humans. You can see, again, the same pattern, very distinct from variation in modern humans. Uh, you know, uh, so uh, unequivocally establishing that the Neanderthal mitochondrial DNA falls outside of variation in, in modern humans. Now, we take it forward on just one more year. So as recently, 2009, we were still talking about complete replacement with respect to mitochondrial DNA. The technology uh, in DNA sequencing has gotten to the point where it becomes more feasible to sequence whole genomes, in, in particular genomes of extinct forms. And the complete genome sequences were obtained in draft form from Neanderthals, as well as this mystery uh, form called Denisova from a, a molar and a finger bone. And I don't want to go into the details, as I said, but the, the bottom line here is that uh, non-Africans and uh, a group from uh, Australasia or Oceania contain a small amount of their genome that comes, that directly matches the Neanderthal and the Denisova genome, respectively. And in order to explain that uh, interesting pattern of sharing, um, it was suggested that there were two interbreeding events. One, as anatomically modern humans first got out of Africa into the Middle East, mixing with Neanderthals. A second uh, interbreeding event somewhere in Southeast Asia, just before anatomically modern humans made it into New Guinea and Australia some 40,000 years ago. And then a second migration from the Middle East to East Asia without, inter without interbreeding with Denisova. Now, I, um, these draft genomes provided compelling evidence for interbreeding, but it was not the first evidence we had for, inter uh, for interbreeding. Going back to 2005, Dan Garrigan in my lab, a postdoc in my lab, um, uh, was leading a project to look at genetic variation in an interesting locus on the X chromosome. And when we uh, reconstructed the gene tree for this region on the X chromosome, we found a gene tree that was quite distinct in many ways from the mitochondrial gene tree. For example, there are two major clades. One clade is entirely restricted to Asians, and the other clade shows every, is in Asians and everyone else, including Africans. Most of, the, most of the loci we look at look just like this part of the clade, where there's an African outgroup and everybody else on the rest of the branches. But in this case, it was Asians as the outgroup. The root was in Asia, and the time to the root was about one and a half million years. So it's interesting to think if we had discovered this kind of uh, pattern before we discovered the mitochondrial pattern, how we might think differently about, about human origins from a genetic perspective. But in this case, nevertheless, we hypothesized that this pattern arose through a pa uh, process of interbreeding as anatomically modern humans got into East Asia, perhaps mixing with Homo erectus, and uh, this little piece of the genome surviving in modern humans today. But interestingly, as many years later, as the Neanderthal draft genome came out, we compared the sequences of this divergent lineage to the, to the Neanderthal genome, and it matched the Neanderthal genome. So we were correct in saying that there was introgression of this divergent branch, but we were not correct in that it turns out it was likely Neanderthal 
that uh, was uh, the, uh, the, the uh, offered this, this branch t- into the genome of, of modern humans. Now, uh, I also have a grad student who is finishing up, who has, in his graduate career, discovered a few more loci that looked very much like this, one which had an Oceanian outgroup and another one that looked something like this. He had uh, suggested to me that this was, uh, these are other examples of interbreeding and intergression. And um, I said, well, you've got, you've got to do a lot to prove that. But meanwhile, the draft genomes came out. He was proven correct. In fact, one case, it was Neanderthal admixture. In the other case, it was Denisovan admixture. But um, using these kinds of examples where we could identify, based on certain characteristics of the DNA sequence, what was likely to have intergressed, we decided to pursue an approach where we would do this in a computational way and screen larger regions of the genome looking for intergressed fragments. And the theory uh, behind this is simple in that if we have a model of uh, divergence where two groups diverge, in the deep past, they stay separate into separate lineages, such as one leading to archaics, one leading to moderns. And there's a period, a short period of recent interbreeding where some of the DNA is now exchanged. Um, what, the, the, what the genetic pattern might look like in, in that kind of model is, for example, if we have these two bars representing chromosomes in modern humans and these in our, our, an archaic form, In the first generation, you have a hybrid where each chromosome, one coming from a modern parent, one coming from an archaic parent, form distinct full chromosomes. But in the process of recombination, and many generations later, these orange chunks, these archaic chunks, get broken down into smaller and smaller pieces. And so our plan was to look for these small little chunks of DNA by the signatures that were specific to the interbreeding process, which I don't have time to go into. But given that we didn't have a reference sequence for fossil DNA from Africa, um, we decided to use uh, genomics and this computational approach to scour the genome for these kind of intergressed fragments. So we applied our uh, approach to a data set of sequences we gathered from uh, a bunch of different African populations. We found evidence for several intergressive haplotypes in different parts of Africa, but the frequencies of the intergressive part, uh, haplotypes were highest in the population, the pygmy populations from Central Africa. Using extensive computer simulations, we first showed that the data were not consistent with a model of no admixture at all. So we rejected the null model of no admixture. And using a likelihood approach, we were able to make inferences about the model that involved intergression. In particular, uh, contemporary African populations seem to contain about uh, 2% contribution of genetic material from an archaic form. Um, that intergressed approximately 35 to 40,000 years ago from a group that split perhaps as long ago as 700,000 years. And given the distribution of these different fragments, we suggested that the interbreeding may have been centered somewhere in Central Africa. Now, I just want to digress for one second here about a very interesting story that came up this year that involved the Y chromosome, and that is the discovery of a very rare and ancient Y chromosome that didn't fit into the known picture of Y chromosome diversity. Many, many years of research on the Y chromosome 
told us it was very much like mitochondrial DNA. All the Y chromosome variation today traced back to a very recent single ancestor that lived in Africa about 100 to 140,000 years ago. This was, the, this was the picture that we had at the time, and it made a lot of sense because the most divergent lineages on the Y tree were found in hunter-gatherer populations like the Khoisan and the Pygmies, which was very similar to autosomal patterns. Well, this particular lineage was discovered in an African-American man from South Carolina who happened to submit this DNA to uh, the National Geographic Genographic Project, which sees thousands and thousands of samples, was very unusual, did not fit on the tree. And when we, were able, when we dated it, we found that the TMRCA pushed, was pushed back to over 300,000 years ago. And interestingly, when we did extensive database searching to see if we could find where else in the world a chromosome like this might exist, we were fortunate to find in Africa, out of thousands and thousands of chromosomes that we searched through, there were 11 that seemed to be very closely related to this uh, chromosome. And it turns out all 11 come from one little tiny region of Western Cameroon from a farming group called the Embo. Now, I just highlight that because the Embo live very, very close to this site that Christopher was talking about, the Iwo Liro site, where there's intermediate or mosaic uh, forms, uh, half sort of intermediate between archaic and modern, modern uh, groups. Well, so just to update where we stand today, now we have to add another admixture process in, in Africa, along with the two outside of Africa. And I just wanted to end by saying something about what kinds of models are supported by the genetic evidence. Certainly we can no longer believe that the right replacement model is correct. Even after 25 years of dominating as a paradigm, it seems to have fallen. And the new models that seem to be relevant are models that were also proposed many years ago based on fossil data. I will talk, I think that this is probably the most reasonable model. It's a, it's a replacement model with hybridization, but I also, I'll skip over that as there doesn't seem to be a single location for transition in Africa. There's no single Garden of Eden. There's a transitional forms that are spread very vastly across the continent. Therefore, there's certainly the opportunity for gene flow among these morphologically diverged groups over a long period of time. And I really like the idea, Chris already described it, where you have the multi-regional model now restricted to Africa, so at a different geographic scale, but these traits that make us anatomically modern could have been flowing along this trellis network of gene flow among these morphologically diverged groups for quite some time until the anatomical form was assembled in a single package somewhere in Africa. And I really like the idea um, and I think before we'll really fully be able to address this from a genetic perspective, we need to find the genes that encode these anatomically modern traits and look at their evolutionary histories. So I'll leave it at that. I'm going to tell you a little bit about the technology used to sequence the genome of Neanderthal and this Denisovan individual and uh, what we have learned from doing that. So um, before I start, I just uh, show the pictures and names of uh, many of the uh, key players in this. The, uh, collecting these data has really been kind of the lifelong project of this visionary, Svante Pabo, who um, was one of the first to imagine that DNA might stick around in very, very old uh, fossil material and um, invented many of the ways of getting that DNA out and uh, sequencing it and many of the other people who uh, helped in analyses along the way. 
way. So um, Neanderthals by now need no introduction. They were uh, morphologically very similar to us, um, uh, yet distinct enough that um, uh, from the early days it was known that they were something different. They have uh, many, many distinguishing characteristics that uh, other experts here could go over uh, in great detail. Um, I just want to put this in some context that uh, if we look morphologically at the crania of uh, Neanderthals and a nearly contemporaneous uh, uh, modern human compared to our closest living relative, the chimpanzee, one can probably find many more similarities here than differences if you put it in context with this outgroup, the chimpanzee. Um, so Neanderthals show up, classical Neanderthals that everyone would agree is a Neanderthal, maybe a few hundred thousand years ago, and they disappear mysteriously from the fossil record about 30,000 years ago. They um, are known mainly from their bones and their stone tool technology from Europe and the Middle East, but we know their range extends into Asia, and um, I agree that um, it is really an open question how far to the east that they went. Perhaps one day we will find Neanderthals from China. I would not at all be surprised uh, by that. Sequencing their genomes has largely uh, been a success story that follows on the heels of advances in high-throughput sequencing. There are several companies now that will sell you machines that will sequence DNA hundreds of thousands of times faster and cheaper than what we could do 10 years ago. One of these companies, Illumina, is kind of the leader um, in the field now. They are based here in San Diego and are pretty much the, the world leader in this DNA sequencing technology. And um, it's what we uh, largely use to sequence DNA that comes out of old bones. So the first uh, really genome scale data set from Neanderthals came from these three bones that um, were dated to about 38,000 years ago that were excavated from this cave, the Vindia Cave in Croatia in 1980. They were chosen from amongst hundreds of bones that Svante and his co-workers had screened through to look for the presence of some surviving DNA and the absence of contaminating modern human DNA, which is a, a large problem with bones that have, after all, been touched by many people who go and dig them out of the ground and uh, museum curators who handle them. So these were found to be largely free of contaminating modern human DNA and have lots of DNA that can be sequenced. So a few years ago, we um, accumulated a little over one billion base pairs from each of those three bones and a little bit of DNA from some other bones so that on average we had a little more than one full coverage of the genome of the Neanderthal. Um, one immediate surprise from this data set was that when one sequences all of the DNA that comes out of an old bone, very little of it is actually from Neanderthal at all. Most of it, identified by sequence similarity, is likely from soil-living microbes that have colonized the bone in the time that it's been sitting in the ground. And in fact, most of those microbes we've never sequenced, so we don't see any similarity in terms of DNA sequence. So we can just assume these are are some microbes that lived long ago in the past, and we focus really on the things that look like primate, look like a Neanderthal. So another thing that we have known for some time is that DNA, as it's sitting around for tens of thousands of years, it sustains chemical damage, and this is the main chemical damage that happens. Cytosine will spontaneously deaminate to uracil, so it's chemically different, and then the polymerases, the enzyme that we use to read the DNA, will read this uracil as a thymidine. So 
where this Neanderthal, when he was alive, walking around, had a cytosine, we will read this often as thymidine. Um, this process is happening all the time. It happens in your cells. It's happening right now, but we have um, energy-dependent repair mechanisms that will detect this cytosine deamination and fix it. They're not perfect, but they're um, good enough to keep us alive through our uh, lifetime. But as soon as we die, this process goes on unchecked and cytosine accumulates damage so that the longer the DNA has been sitting in the ground, the more we will see this C to T difference. We were able to see early on as we started to accumulate data that this C to T damage pattern was concentrated on the ends of reeds and learned a lot about the process of diagenesis, how the DNA changes over time. The spatial pattern wound up being very important to learn about. And so once we had learned what we could learn from that, we started doing data analysis. And this is um, a figure of uh, a broad scale view of the genetic difference between Neanderthal, human, and chimpanzee. So we have a reference human genome. We know there's DNA sequence variation amongst human, but the reference sequence, the one that we have known in, in some form for about 10 years now, is what we all use to compare other humans that we might sequence, to see where they are different from this reference, this one instance of the human genome. We have something similar for the chimpanzee. So if we just align the Neanderthal, the human, the reference human and the reference chimpanzee, we can ask for each of the three bones, where do we see some difference? Where is the chimpanzee difference and the Neanderthal and the human are the same? Or where is the Neanderthal difference and the human and the chimpanzee are the same? Or where is the human difference where the Neanderthal and the chimp are the same? And one thing that kind of stands out um, and in each of these bar charts, I'm just showing what the difference is. So for example, here, the um, Neanderthal and the human have a G, but the chimpanzee has an A. So doing this kind of analysis, you can see that these types of differences happen faster than these types. These are transitions. These are transversions. This is a description of molecular evolution. These things happen faster than these things. The same pattern is here over in the differences that are just specific to human, but the Neanderthal pattern is very, very different. We see this huge excess of G to A and C to T, as we know to expect from DNA that has been damaged. So in this first data set that we published um, a little over two years ago now, it was the case that what we could learn about um, human evolution from Neanderthal DNA was nothing really about this lineage here, nothing about Neanderthals themselves. And that's because we know that most of the differences that are specific to Neanderthals are in fact errors. There are errors in the DNA that have accumulated while the DNA was sitting in the ground, or they're the machine error, the background sequencing error that we have when we are sequencing DNA. And having only one fold coverage of the genome, it's rife with errors. So we see um, something like 130,000 transversions on this lineage and only 30,000 on the human lineage. And we know that we should accumulate basically the same amount of differences, yet there's this huge excess over on the Neanderthal side. So at that point, what we could do with the Neanderthal genome is really define this point here. That is, find the positions where the Neanderthal matches the chimpanzee, but the human is different. That is, ask what changes have happened in the human genome since we diverged from Neanderthal. But all of the questions about 
specific changes in Neanderthal would have to wait uh, better technology, which, skipping ahead a little bit, has come online, and we'll get to that in a minute. Um, but before I start talking about the, the contrast that we want to make between Neanderthals and humans and answering the questions we can answer with Neanderthal DNA, I'm going to do a, a very brief primer on genetics and sexually reproducing um, diploids like us. Um, if you imagine yourself as the current generation, um, which I used to do, um, less and less I do, but um, you're in the current generation here, you have, you know, you get your uh, genome, two copies of the genome, one copy you get from your father and one copy you get from your mother. So of each of your chromosome pairs, one of those pairs came directly from the sperm in your dad and one from the individual egg in your mom that would eventually yield you. Um, what you may not uh, uh, know or think about all the time is that that chromosome that your dad bequeathed to you or your mom bequeathed to you did not exist in your dad or your mom. It was a special version of the two chromosomes that existed in your dad or your mom that were recombined together, stitched together, and put in that single sperm that would become you or that single egg that would become you. And each sperm and each egg are different. That's why brothers and sisters are different. So um, this recombination denoted by the little X here um, shows that this chromosome inherited from the father has the front tip here from the chromosome that he got from his mother and the back part from the chromosome that he got from his father. So in you, the current generation is the, the physically melded manifestation, not of your parents, but of your grandparents. So um, this is um, the father's chromosome, which is the father's mother stitched to the father's father in a single chromosome. So this happens, this process happens um, more or less in a random place along the chromosome in every generation. So if one is to trace one's ancestry back in time, there is in fact a different ancestry at every place in the genome. Every place in your genome traces back a different path through your ancestors. So if you are to ask, um, for example, where did I say there's a, a gene here for a very wide nose like I have? So this uh, wide nose gene is here. Um, maybe I got this from my father who got it, if it's in this yellow region, from his father who got it from his mother, if the, uh, the female is on bottom here. Well, where in my genome is that gene from my father's mother? It's not there. I didn't get anything in my genome there from my father's mother. My father's mother is missing in my ancestry for that gene. Maybe some other gene I did get something from my father's mother. So this makes um, reconstructing ancestry very, very difficult. It also means that if you compare any two people who are alive today and ask where and when in the past did they have a common ancestor, who was that individual who gave DNA to the two people who we're comparing now? There is always a person who was that common ancestor, but as you move across the genome from place to place, that person who had the DNA that would eventually be inherited in the two people you're comparing now, that will be a different person who may have lived in a completely different part of the world, hundreds of thousands of years different in time. So these genealogies go back in time, sometimes very shallow, sometimes very, very deep. 
That's just the reality of the uh, population genetics within humans or any sexually reproducing diploid species. Okay, so with this in mind, we can ask how long ago in the past, on average, do two humans have a common ancestor at a random place in the genome? And this turns out to be, for humans, something like 450,000 years ago in the past. Okay, so um, it's 450,000 years ago, plus or minus about 450,000 years ago, um, which is funny, but it's also true. This is a Poisson process. The mean and the variance are the same. So it, it really could be much, much more recent. It is much more recent in some places and much, much deeper in other places. Um, and we can say now with Neanderthal genome, the average coalescent between a human and a Neanderthal was something over 800,000 years ago in the past. Okay? But we know from various lines of evidence that the population split that would lead to humans on one hand and Neanderthals on the other hand from this ancestral population that Chris Stringer might call Homo heidelbergensis, uh, something like this, this common ancestor population, it wasn't a single individual, it was a population that had its own genetic uh, variation. And something like 300,000 years ago, this variation would be split off into one population that would become us and into another population that would become Neanderthals. So what this means is these random genealogies that go back in time, they often predate the population split that would lead to humans and Neanderthals. So the variation that's alive today within us was already alive in that common ancestor population and was alive within Neanderthals up until the time that they went extinct. So one implication of this is that there are many places in the genome where you may have a common ancestor with a Neanderthal more recently than you have a common ancestor with another human. In fact, we think this is true for about 85% of the genome, that Neanderthals fall within the variation at a, through about 85% of the genome. Okay? So that means that we share variation with Neanderthals for a seemingly uninteresting reason that they fall within our gene trees. We're that closely related to them that we might share, I might have an A where a Neanderthal has an A because of that mutation happened in a common ancestor and someone else doesn't have an A because their common ancestor was longer ago in the past and didn't have that mutation. Somewhere else in the genome, maybe um, they're more closely related to a Neanderthal than me. Okay? So this is the backdrop against which we must compare human diversity to understand how we are different from Neanderthals. So this process being random, sometimes I'm more closely related to a Neanderthal than you, sometimes you more than me. It is random, and the, um, the, the expectation is that if this completely random process is going on, then over the entire genome, I will be more closely related to a Neanderthal than you exactly as often as you are more closely related to a Neanderthal than me. As long as they are a clean outgroup to all humans, we're all dis the equally distantly related to Neanderthals. So um, to test this hypothesis, um, we sequence a genome of five individuals from around the world, two from Africa, uh, three from outside of Africa, from the places shown there. One can ask along the genome, locally along the genome, how different are the three Neanderthals in orange and yellow here, or the five humans that we sequence to the reference human genome, this one instance of the human genome. And this difference, and the units here are as a percentage of the way back to chimpanzee, this difference has a distribution because of that random coalescent process. Sometimes two people are very different, and the 
you get a segment that's way out here. Sometimes they're very uh, similar. But on average, the Neanderthals are more distant to the reference human than any human is to the reference human. But that summary... Uh, it turns out hides a lot of very important and interesting details. So in an analysis um, devised by Nick Patterson and uh, David Reich, this very simple comparison, we can ask this question, are any two people that we compare equally dissimilar to a Neanderthal? So if we find a place, all the places, in fact, genome-wide, where the West African and the French guy have a genetic difference, maybe this guy, the West African, has a T and the French guy has a G, what does the Neanderthal have? If Neanderthals are a clean outgroup, it should be 50-50, sometimes matching the West African and sometimes matching the French guy. Um, the, the observation was that when one compares two Africans, the result is statistically indistinguishable from 50-50. Furthermore, if you compare um, two of the non-Africans, the result is also statistically indistinguishable from 50-50. But any comparison between an African and a non-African showed excess allele matching of the non-African to the Neanderthal. And this, then, um, is a summary of this. All of these guys are basically the same in increased Neanderthal allele matching, and these guys are the same, but any comparison across them shows excess here. So from this, um, we devised the, the parsimonious model that when humans migrated out of Africa maybe 70 or 80,000 years ago and first came into the Neanderthal territory, there was a, an episode of admixture, and this group of individuals would then colonize the rest of Eurasia and bring 1% to 4% of this Neanderthal um, ancestry with them. So that was um, an interesting story and kind of how things stood for a few months until um, <laughs> a bone from this cave was discovered with remarkably well-preserved DNA. There were some uh, technological improvements that um, removed this uh, uh, base damage at the end so that from the Denisova compared to the Vindia Neanderthals, we get really, really clean data and could do a lot more with it. It looks very similar to the Vindia in terms of divergence. If you make a tree, the Denisova sits in a really weird place. It's a sister group to the Neanderthals, an outgroup to humans, um, but it's genetically more distinct from Neanderthals than any two human are today. And there's this really, really odd signal of increased allele matching from individuals in Papua New Guinea. This has been investigated more, and this signal seems to locate east of the Wallace line. It's present in uh, uh, Australians and people from uh, this region and, and largely absent from mainland Asia. Um, technology keeps getting better. Um, this guy, Matthias Meyer, had the imagination to think that DNA might actually be single-stranded from these bones and devised a method of, of pulling down single-stranded DNA, not just double-stranded DNA, and was able to increase the yield from this Denise of a bone many, many times over and get DNA genome from the Denisova of about 30-fold coverage. This allows one to pretty much ring out all the errors. Every base you get to see on average 30 times. And now, instead of having an excess branch leading to the archaic group, you have a shorter branch, which is in fact what one would uh, anticipate if this individual has been dead for long enough 
the evolution that continues through every generation, these accumulation of mutations, the clock stopped on this individual. And he's missing, um, we estimate, somewhere between 74 and 80,000 years of molecular evolution, which presents a new way to date uh, bones, just from the missing DNA sequence mutation within it. Um, uh, I'm running out of time, but I just want to uh, finish up with this one last thing. Um, as I mentioned, you have two copies of the genome, the one that mother and father gave, and every place in the genome tells a different evolutionary story, a different TMRCA. This means that within the genome of a single individual, one can answer lots of questions about the whole of human evolutionary history. And in fact, you can look at the local density of heterozygous sites, places where your mom was different from your dad, and infer how long ago their common ancestor was across the genome, and make these plots in a very creative use of genetic data that say, through the past, how big was the population size um, that led to various individuals here, including the Denisova. And one outcome of this was that the Denisovan sample um, uh, seemed to indicate that not only um, did they eventually go extinct, but their effective population size, the amount of diversity that they were carrying, had been low for a long, long time. So this population, um, the population size of whatever group this individual belonged to was um, low um, and likely struggling for quite some time up until the point when they eventually disappeared. So um, I will um, just end with some questions. There are a lot of great answers from you know, ancient DNA, but they uh, propose new questions. And one of them that is really a hot open question is this one episode of admixture that we have here with a rather crude method asking how much allele matching is there, does that hide details that might be interesting? Might there have been subsequent episodes of admixture in the long time that humans um, coexisted with Neanderthals? Who were these Denisovans? We have a single uh, pinky bone and a molar. We know very little about them morphologically. We don't know their range. We know that they're DNA winds up in people who live very, very far away from the cave where this bone was found. And finally, were there other archaics that were involved in ancient admixture events? So, thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.